What is Bob Dylan? Six episodes down, and we might have some clues, or no clue whatsoever. But it's the journey, the process, the turning around of thoughts and feelings about Dylan that counts, that brings meaning into our lives, right? That's the hope, anyway. That the more focus and contemplation you can bring to Dylan's music, the more enriched your own life hopefully will become. This series of broadcasts is completely free of charge, but your help in spreading the word is greatly appreciated. That means downloading episodes, following along on social media, and sharing with as many kindred spirits as you can conjure up. Our website is all one word, A. Bob Dylan Primer. That's A. Bob Dylan, P-R-I-M-E-R, dot com. We begin this episode as a new decade opens up. The 60s are over, at least chronologically, and the 1970s have begun. Dylan's first decade is also wrapping up. He's been writing, performing, and recording songs for nearly 10 years now. The 60s, the monumental 60s, are over. It's 1970 in America. So what's happening? As a teacher of mine used to say, what's happening is what's happening. There's a lot going on. There's a lot happening. As always, or at least as always in the world of these broadcasts, things, however, are not simple. Things are not one way. And that's ultimately perhaps the greatest lesson that Dylan has to teach us. Thinking about those days now, it seems that most young and or most engaged people didn't think about the new year as any kind of great demarcation. Those moments only became clear later like the death by stabbing of 18-year-old Meredith Hunter during the Rolling Stones' performance at the Altamont Music Festival in December 1969, which is today viewed as one of the moments where the 60s came to an end. But New Year's Day 1970 was more like a continuation. The feeling is that a whole lot of things have been started and now need to evolve into something permanent. There is a sense that a kind of new age of enlightenment is on the horizon. Of course, Richard Nixon is firmly entrenched in the White House, and the war in Vietnam is still raging. But things are changing, at different speeds and in different places at different times. Dylan, who had definitely represented the cutting edge for most of his career, is now in the midst of a disengagement from the white-hot center of cultural life in the United States and beyond. And the question, or a question, is why did this happen? If we look at a song like All the Tired Horses from Self-Portrait, it's basically a nursery rhyme, a very simple melody with one verse repeated over and over again, sung by a chorus of female voices with a romantic string accompaniment behind them. Dylan's voice isn't even on the track. And Self-Portrait, which we talked about in some detail in the previous episode, was released in early June of 1970. Just one month earlier, all hell broke loose on American college campuses as a reaction to Richard Nixon ordering the bombing of Cambodia. And so the first week of May 1970 was a time of intensely violent protests, probably the most intense demonstrations of the entire anti-war movement. And the terrible and tragic nadir of that week was when National Guard troops opened fire at Kent State University on May 4th and killed four students. That was a rough time. 
So what are we to make of Dylan seeming to be completely out of touch with a cultural and historical moment? I think there's a lesson there, and Dylan was unknowingly teaching it to us as he continued to search for creative forms that would not only express his own consciousness and subconscious, but also forms that would express as yet unknown and unrevealed knowledge and understandings. Dylan started creating work that was designed, consciously or unconsciously, to push him away from that center of meaning and discourse about music, politics, and cultural life at that moment, because it was only in a place removed from the sound and fury of those days that Dylan could begin to hear other, perhaps more resonant and meaningful sounds. And then, that October of 1970, as things in the country are maybe beginning to cool down a little, Dylan releases a new album called New Morning. And it's seen as a new beginning, a new decade. People are sensing that the turmoil of the 60s might be coming to an end, and people, and by people I mean rock critics and Dylan fans, feel like order is restored. Even though it's an unusual or unexpected album from Dylan, and people are still stuck in his mid-60s mindset, this record feels cohesive. For one thing, it's got a very elegant cover with a cool portrait of Dylan. He looks kind of like a serious scholar. He looks almost rabbinical. And the album has six songs on one side and six on the other. And the sound is polished, and the songs are great. And the two songs that anchor the record are the first song on the first side and the first song on the second side. So the package has been put together in an almost traditional manner. And those two songs are If Not For You to open the album and New Morning to kick off the second side. Both are kind of exaltations of rebirth and joy and love. And a lot of the album seems like a testament to matrimonial love. Married bliss, you could almost call it. The first song, If Not For You, was a small hit for George Harrison off All Things Must Pass. And then, in 1973, Olivia Newton-John hit the top ten with her gentle version of the song. It's just a simple, joyous love song that was pretty catchy. And when fans heard it and the rest of New Morning, most seemed happy to put Dylan in the box of, well, he survived this tough period and the weird song choices on self-portrait, and now he's back writing this new material, and all is good. And that's an interpretation that works, but of course... Dylan never fits neatly into a box or a bottle or any contained form. And there are outliers on this album, especially the last two songs on the album. The second to last song on the album is called Three Angels, and it's a spoken recitation over a churchy organ backing. Basically a Christmas poem about trying to find faith and purity in the corrupted modern world. It's poetic and cool and it doesn't sound anything like anything Dylan has ever done before, or has done since. And the last song on the album is called Father of Night, and Father of Night is a straight-up prayer. It's as religious a song as you can imagine, and yet the idea of Dylan creating anything in a religious vein was so far from people's expectations at that time that they just couldn't process it. They wrote it off as a joke, or a throwaway, or an experiment, or something. But I think listening to it today, you can pretty clearly hear that Dylan was not kidding around at all. And he's offering up this prayer to a mystical father, 
who is all-seeing and all-doing, and it's got kind of a theme of the natural world, and it's just something you can imagine a preacher reciting in church. And I think, along with the religious imagery on John Wesley Harding and a few other things, it points to where Dylan was going to go almost a decade later with his so-called religious music. Again, Dylan always leaves a lot of clues. We're just not always up to finding or seeing them. As I've said before, in the first half a dozen of these broadcasts, I was hewing very closely to the chronology of Dylan's official album releases as a way to mark and chart his journey. But after 1967, after John Wesley Harding, I think it's more productive to look at what Dylan was doing above and beyond or not being so tied to the official releases. So he recorded a considerable amount of material in late 1969 and 1970. And a lot of that material ended up on Self-Portrait and then later on New Morning. But there are also a lot of outtakes and other material that he recorded then. To look at some of that material, we're going to take a step backwards to the sessions that produced Self-Portrait and New Morning and look at the material that was finally released in August of 2013 as another Self-Portrait. And the point is that there's no clear defining line between the much hated, in quotes, back then I'm talking about, self-portrait tracks and the so-considered redemptive tracks on New Morning. Now today, people mostly look at this stuff differently, but I'm talking about how it was perceived back then as a lesson about how we should question our interpretation or our summations or our judgments on contemporary material and especially contemporary material by Dylan or any newly encountered Dylan material. If we look at all of that music together from those couple of years, there are some amazingly beautiful and purely musical songs that Dylan recorded and left off of Self-Portrait and New Morning back in the 70s that finally appear on another Self-Portrait in 2013. I read that when Dylan was recording these songs, Bob Johnson, the producer in a later interview, mentioned that Dylan brought a stack of old songbooks into the studio, songbooks of folk songs, and would just skim through the books and then pick out selections and then record them. So I did a little research and I found a songbook that was a collection of reprints from an old folk music magazine journal from the early and mid-60s that Dylan was heavily involved with. It was called Sing Out and it was a seminal primary folk music publication edited by Erwin Silber, and this magazine was a huge part of Dylan's formative time in New York City, especially in 1961 and 62. Within the pages of that Sing Out songbook, I found sheet music for the songs Days of 49, Pretty Cerro, Cerro Jane, and Railroad Bill, four songs that found their way onto these recordings. You might think, so what? That's a coincidence. But if you look at the songs in the book, in the songbook, and compare them with what Dylan recorded, you can see that Dylan sang the lyrics word for word from the songbooks. He was using the lyrics exactly, even down to very tiny idiosyncratic details. There can be no doubt that Dylan was flipping through this songbook, seeing songs that he either thought looked good or that he had a memory of hearing, and then putting the songbook up on a music stand and playing the song. And that's fine. But what I find amazing is that Dylan was able, in doing that, to evoke this incredible 
emotional power through a very simple musical interpretation, almost mechanical. People talk about Dylan's genius as a writer of complex lyrics and ideas, but here he was just literally reading off a page, possibly with a rehearsal or two, but I would say these were probably first takes, and he was able to imbue these songs with passionate clarity. And I think one of the keys to Dylan's musical power that is so often overlooked is his ability to convey emotional meaning using only melody and sound, separate from lyrical content. The standout track from all of this music is called Pretty Sarah, a simple, plaintive ode to lost love that to me illustrates perfectly the magic that Dylan is able to put into or draw out of a song. In this case, a long-forgotten and obscure traditional folk song that Dylan discovered or rediscovered in a cheap songbook. And it's one of the most beautiful little songs ever. There's a question that comes to mind as you hear how absolutely committed Dylan is to putting down the most full-figured, fleshed-out vocal singing and guitar performance for songs that are almost filler from an old songbook. They weren't songs that were pillars of the form or songs that had been made famous by other people. They're mostly forgotten minor folk songs, and Dylan is singing them as if his life depended on creating the most beauteous, the most beautiful vocal rendition possible. And so the question arises, why was he doing this? Who was he trying to impress? You might say, well, great artists don't create work to impress other people, and that's true. But there's something about the world of pop music and folk songs and performing artists that normally you have a sense of an artist and what they're trying to do. Either they're trying to fit into a mold or break a mold. But this material from Dylan, it just stands apart. It's almost like he truly didn't care anymore about getting any kind of reception from an audience. And instead, was just committed to making the purest sound he could in song. Probably the more accurate or productive way to look at this way in which Dylan does this, and I guess this is the lesson of it, is that Dylan is an almost supernaturally musical person. And that fact is obscured most of the time by his image and his wordplay and his persona. But beyond all that is this young man that had an uncanny ability to absorb and then regurgitate incredibly beautiful music and musical forms. Moving back to Dylan in the 70s and looking at the period from the release of New Morning in October 1970 up to the fall of 1973, when things start to shift again for Dylan in a big way, these three years are interesting, but it's difficult for me to put a label on the period or assess exactly how it fits into the jigsaw puzzle of Dylan's life in terms of being a transitional phase or trying to make perfect sense out of it. It's a three-year period during which there were some extremely wonderful musical high points, but there's not a lot of output and Dylan is in a certain way obscured from public view and scrutiny. It's hard to know exactly what was going on with him. After New Morning comes out, the narrative, the published history, is that Dylan had gone through a period where he was searching and got bloated, and money went to his head, and he lost his way. He lost his spot as the leading light. But now, the ship has been righted, and New Morning is a return to form. It's not the old Dylan, but it's a passable representation of a torchbearer for the finest songwriter of the generation. New Morning was received in many ways as just that, 
A new morning in Dylan's career, a new morning for America as we entered this new decade, a new morning focused on the land and the country, and a kind of return to a more land-based and ecological worldview. But as is often the case with Dylan, things aren't exactly the way they seem. At some point, just after the release of this record, Dylan moved from the country of Woodstock back to the city of Manhattan and got an apartment in Greenwich Village, where he had started his career 10 years earlier. What's interesting about this in terms of the intersection of Dylan's work with his personal life is that New Morning's kind of standout song is If Not For You, which is a very pure expression of a kind of domestic peace and harmony and love and certainly seems to have sprung from Dylan's relationship with his wife, Sarah. But just after that song is released, Dylan leaves the center of bucolic peace in Woodstock, where he and Sarah were raising their five kids, and moves back to becoming a little bit more of a city cat again, walking the streets of the village and prowling his old haunts. So, just as Dylan's public is starting to get comfortable with the idea of him as a little bit of a country gentleman, or slightly elder statesman, Dylan himself is ready to shuffle off that cloak and try on some new duds. The first thing that happens professionally is that Dylan splits with his longtime record producer, Bob Johnston, who produced Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, Nashville Skyline, and Self Portrait. And it's not entirely clear why they parted ways, but anyway, at some point Dylan meets up with Leon Russell, who was riding a wave at that moment as a sort of mastermind behind Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, which was a big deal. And Leon Russell has a majestic and magnificent career in his own right. And at this point, he's already gone through some drastic changes in his career and persona, not that dissimilar from some of Dylan's shapeshifter changes. So anyway, Leon and Dylan meet up somewhere. I think it was out in Los Angeles. And they have a conversation, and at some point, Dylan asks Leon to put together some musicians for him to record with, and Leon suggests a studio in New York City called Blue Sky Studios. And so sometime in early 1971, Leon puts together a ragtag group of players. And I'm using that term ragtag in the loosest possible way because this group is an absolutely kick-ass unit of spectacular and funky players, including Jim Keltner on drums and Carl Radel on bass holding down the bottom the deeply underappreciated and star-crossed Jesse Ed Davis on guitar, and Leon on piano. And that right there is a band that could keep up with just about anyone on the planet. And so they went into the studio, and it's not clear what the plan was, or even if there was much of a plan. During that session, they recorded a handful of songs, but so far only two songs from the session have been released. One of them was called Watching the River Flow. Watching the River Flow features a blisteringly funky and rocking blues backing with phenomenal playing by the players and a really strong vocal from Dylan that, surprise, found him singing in a rough-edged, nasally growl that he'd never sung in before. And while the lyrical content of the record isn't going to compete with Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, it tells a pretty compelling tale about contemplating one's place in life. Some critics thought it was a one-off throwaway, but the always thoughtful Grill Marcus considers it a much more nuanced record. And a few months later, Dylan called Leon Russell up again, this time to play bass 
when Dylan surprised everybody by agreeing to perform at the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden in New York City, organized by Dylan's very dear friend, George Harrison. At the time of that concert in August 1971, Dylan had not performed on stage anywhere in two years, but he came out and absolutely stole the show. People don't talk much about this performance, probably because neither the live album nor the feature-length film of the night are easily available. But to me, it represents one of the pinnacles of Dylan performing live. Dylan's voice is maybe the clearest and warmest it's ever been. And he does a version of Just Like a Woman that's like a tender nail being softly driven into your heart muscle. And then Dylan's quiet for a few months. But in November of 1971, he calls up Leon Russell again and books a studio in New York City and goes in to record a song he's just written about George Jackson, the African-American activist and writer who was killed by prison guards in a spectacular escape attempt from prison gone very wrong, where Jackson was serving time for an armed robbery charge. And Dylan records two versions of the song, which is just called George Jackson, one with Leon Russell leading a band and one with Dylan accompanying himself on acoustic guitar and harmonica. And that recording also has been mostly ignored or criticized as being shallow and even exploitative, an attempt to cash in on liberal sentiment for Jackson after his death. Not too much to comment about that, but listen to the track if you can. I've put it on the Spotify playlist for this episode under a Bob Dylan Primer, Episode 7. I love the way Dylan sings a simple yet powerful lament for Jackson. And the song fits into the group of songs Dylan has written about men who stood outside the law, who refused to play by the rules, even if Dylan's memorializing of some of these men may have shined a light into some questionable shadows. Columbia Records rushed the single out to the public a week after the recording session, but it didn't make much of a splash. It was getting near Christmas time, and a song about a gunned-down black activist wasn't high on most people's shopping lists. The coolest album to come out that month was Hunky Dory, the fourth record from David Bowie. And there was almost nothing in the world that could compete with that masterpiece on a creative level. So, we've gone from the start of 1970 to the end of 1971 in this episode. And of course, the question burning in all of your brains is... What the hell did Dylan do in 1972? And the short answer is nothing. For the long answer, you'll have to tune in to the next episode as we look at Dylan finally making it to the big screen as a movie star. Well, maybe not quite a movie star, but a quirky role in a magnificent Western movie directed by the legendary Sam Peckinpah. And then just when people think old Bob might be fading away into the sunset, he loads up his six-string and comes blazing back onto the scene. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music reference, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to find cool supporting content about Bob Dylan including links to some amazing stuff. And thank you very much.